We've been in the midst of this series moving through uh, Mark where, where our author, Mark, is trying to connect uh, Jesus and his ministry and his person with the God of the Old Testament. And so we've seen uh, this touch point, for example, between the manna that God providentially provides in the wilderness for his people and Jesus feeding the 5,000. Um, and we've also seen that some of those connections are connections in tension. And so last week we saw as Jesus both challenged the uh, traditions of the religious leaders of the Jews that had been elevated so much that they actually, uh, actually resisted God's commandments in the Old Testament, but we also saw that in declaring all foods clean, that he was starting something new, that he was moving forward in God's plan, um, that he was in some way going to bring the law in the Old Testament to an end. Uh, we're going to find some of that tension again uh, in today's uh, passage as we look at a woman who is not Jewish uh, who comes to Jesus for help. Now, there's just a few threads I want to draw out into this story before we even get started. Uh, the first is, for the next few weeks, we'll be looking at things that Jesus does not in the land of Israel proper, not in the midst of the Jewish people, um, but on the fringes and even on the outside of Israel with non-Jewish people. And so, no surprise, it's going to be the same things we've already been looking at. In fact, the capstone of uh, what Mark is doing here ends with Jesus feeding a crowd of 4,000 people, these ones not being Jewish, but in the area of the Decapolis. And obviously, he tells us both stories to say, as here, so also there. Okay? And so there is this uh, same ministry, different place part of what we're getting into now. The second thing uh, it has to do with that transitional passage we looked at last week. When Jesus declares all food clean, inherently he begins to break down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. And so it's no surprise the next thing Mark wants to tell us about brings about all of those te uh, cultural tensions, brings about all the division and all of the rules about how to behave as a unique people in the midst of the nations. Okay, so more on that in just a minute, but that's the broader context. Okay, and the reason why I'm emphasizing the context this morning is because it's very easy to misunderstand what we're about to read. Okay, uh, George Bernard Shaw, the famous uh, uh, idea man, philosopher, opinionist. Uh, and sparring partner G.K. Chesterton said, this is the one moment in the Gospels where Jesus doesn't behave like a Christian, okay? Uh, that, was, that was his claim here, and you'll see why, but we need to remember this context to get what's going on. So, chapter 7, verse 24. And from there he, Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little, little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children feed first, for it's not right 
to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in a bed and the demon gone. Let's pray. Father, we pray that through your word this morning you would reveal yourself to us. I pray that we would come to understand uh, in a better way, in a deeper way, in a fuller way, you, uh, your provision in Jesus Christ, as well as ourselves. And we pray that you would send your spirit to teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It's an interesting happening, isn't it? Jesus seems so ready and available to heal. You remember the leper at the beginning of Mark's gospel? He comes to Jesus, he falls down, and he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. If you want to, I know you have the power to heal, and Jesus says, I'm willing, be cleansed. Over and over again, people bring their problems to Jesus, and it doesn't matter how large they are, uh, it doesn't matter who they are, it doesn't matter uh, what barriers they are, Jesus responds, he heals, he does something. Um, but here, he, he almost seems to send the woman away. He says, no, that's not right. I shouldn't do that. In fact, the problem here is, is a pretty obvious one, especially if you're reading it in a first century world, if you're reading it in the time these things happen, in the time that these things were written, because we see here that Jesus, again, is not in the land of Israel, but in the area of Tyre. Now, if you were to check your maps in the back of your Bible, Tyre and Sidon are the coastal region above Israel. It's Phoenicia, okay? In fact, Josephus, who was a, a Jewish historian who wrote uh, about 30 years after this time, he says that the city of Tyre, those people were Israel's bitterest enemies, okay? And so there is some animosity in this area. On top of that, this is Gentile area. It's outside of the region of Israel. Uh, and then even, even on top of that, Jesus uses the language of dogs. His metaphor here is pretty easy to pick up on, isn't it? He says, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. In other words... He says, what I'm doing, the provision that I'm doing, what's happening right now, this is for Israel. And it's not right to give what belongs to Israel to an outsider. In fact, that language of dog, I mean, first and foremost, we still see that as somewhat derogatory today. Okay? But if you read Jewish writings from the time, uh, dogs is a common label that they use for non-Jewish people. Gentile dogs is a phrase that gets thrown around a lot. Okay? And so we read this, and it seems inherently and obviously racist. It seems like Jesus is making a division and saying, these people are worthy of my help, these people are not. Okay. Now, there's a few things uh, that we need to understand uh, in this passage. There's a few things that we need to wrap our head around. But the first thing we need to notice is actually in verse 24. Notice it says, from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. The first thing we have to notice here is what Jesus is up to. Why is he here at all? Why has he moved into this region? 
And it's a little bit odd because we see here that he, uh, he gets there, he finds a house, and he tries to hunker down uh, and not be noticed. Okay? It says that he was hoping to hide out in this house, but he could not be hidden. <clears throat> you see, just uh, a few chapters ago, just a few days prior to this, Jesus had turned to his disciples who had freshly returned from some ministry in Jesus' name. So they come back and he says, let us go out into the wilderness and get some rest. Let's take a pause. Let's recharge. Let's go out and just be alone. So they get in a boat and they travel across the Sea of Galilee, and the people are so exhilarated, so excited, so interested in Jesus that they see him get in the boat, they chart where he's going, and they run along the shore, and they're waiting for him when he arrives, okay? That's when he teaches them all day, he has compassion on them, he feeds the 5,000 miraculously, that's when all of that happens. The point is, Jesus never got the rest he was looking for. He never got away like he was uh, looking to do. He tried to go to the wilderness, and the wilderness became full of people because that's where Jesus was, okay? And so he goes up north into the region of Tyre to get away, okay? Now, this is for one of two reasons. The, the most obvious one in the text is for rest, for recharge. We find Jesus often wanting time alone to pray, to hear from God, uh, to rest because he, like all of us, is human and needs rest. Um, but it also might be, and I would suggest Mark is really drawing this out, that he brings the disciples out here, not just to recharge, but to instruct them privately. Okay. Jesus's ministry, if you read through the Gospel of Mark, has kind of two parts. There's the ministry to the crowds, which is full of teaching about the kingdom of God, uh, which, is, um, which involves healings and these types of things. And then there's the preparing of his disciples, these men that he has called by name who will have a mission after this is all over, who he's currently equipping. Okay? And so I would suggest to you that he's in the region of Tyre and even in these other places to teach them lessons, to instruct them. But it's worth pointing here, he's in this place in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile territory, outside of Israel, um, somewhat of a hostile territory, uh, and he's wanting privacy, he's wanting quiet, and he's interrupted by this woman. Okay. The woman comes because her young daughter uh, has some sort of unclean spirit. Her daughter is demon-possessed, uh, and she has heard about Jesus, apparently. She's heard that he's entered into the land, and so he comes to implore, uh, to ask for his help. Uh, Mark tells us in verse 26 that she was a Gentile. Uh, your translation may say that she was a Greek. That doesn't mean from Greece. It means Greek as opposed to Jew, this normal contrast in the New Testament. She was not Jewish. Specifically, she was a Syrophoenician, okay? Uh, Syrophoenician meaning Syro in the area of Syria, still where Syria is today, as opposed to like Carthage, Phoenicia, which is in North Africa, Okay. So she's a Syrophoenician, she's a local, she's not Jewish, she's a woman, and it says here in verse 26, she was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. 
Now, when we look at the Old Testament, the majority of it focuses on God's dealing with a particular people group, right? Israel, the Jews. In fact, when we get to Genesis chapter 12, God calls a single man and his barren wife, and he says, come from your lineage, for your descendants, I am going to bless them. I am going to give them a land. I am going to make a covenant with them, right? And so when we get to the book of Exodus and God sends Moses to bring all of Abraham's descendants out of Egypt and into the land, that's the beginning of that covenant. It's those people, the Israelites, that he gives the law in the book of Exodus, right? The focus is there. The stories we read in the Old Testament are about the prophets of Israel, about the kings of Israel, about the people of Israel, okay? And so there's this very strong focus on a single people group in the Old Testament. In fact, we see in the book of Leviticus, as well as Exodus and Deuteronomy, that those people were to separate themselves, to live differently, and even at a distance from other nations, okay? That's partially what the food laws were about. Leviticus can be a very hard book to read, But if you read it closely and carefully, you will see that the moral logic that's employed all the time is do these things so that you are not like the Egyptians, so that you are not like the people of the land of Canaan. It's a distinction. It's a difference. It's a distancing. Okay. Even think of the language that God uses in the Old Testament to refer to Israel. My people Israel. As as opposed to other people. And so when we come to this, and when we come to the days uh, that Jesus is operating in, there's a general religious understanding. We are God's people. We are the chosen ones. We are the elect. We are the holy. Those people are not. Those are the outsiders. Those are apart from the covenant. Those are others. And so we get that distinction Uh, And that's the world that Jesus is operating in. However, if you read the Old Testament, you will notice a couple of things. First and foremost, during that entire duration, from the days of Abraham to the days that we're reading about here in Mark, God is at work beyond the boundaries of Israel. In fact, when it comes to, to Syrophoenicians in particular, The prophet Elijah, in the Old Testament, is outside of the land of Israel and comes across a woman, much like this woman, whose child has died, a Syrophoenician woman in the city of Zarephath. And Elijah brings her back to life. See, let me add a couple more things just to lay out the tension, what we need to process. Who is Mark writing these things to? This story of the Syrophoenician woman and her conversation with Jesus, the healing of her daughter, exists not just in Matthew's gospel, but here in Mark. What makes Mark's gospel unique is he's writing to the church in Rome, which is made up almost entirely of what? Gentiles. Okay. Mark is writing to a home church the story of Jesus, and he includes this story and says, you need to know about this in particular. Okay. On top of that, as we see here, Jesus does go about healing the woman's daughter, and it's not just because she won the argument. 
okay? There's something more going on here. There's something deeper going on here. And here's the best way to get at what's going on. I want you to notice she asks him this question, please cast the demon out of my daughter, verse 27. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The most important word in that entire verse is the easiest one to miss. It's the word first. When Jesus lays out this metaphor and he he envisions a household where there are children and dogs, he doesn't say, let the children be fed alone and don't feed the dogs. He says, let the children be fed first and then you feed the dogs. Okay. That word first is significant. Here's the thing that's easy to miss if you read through the Old Testament and was definitely missed by many in Jesus' day. God does get particular. In Genesis 12, he focuses on one man and his descendants and one nation, the nation of Israel. He gives them the covenant and makes them his covenantial people. But his goal in being particular is universal. And you can see this even in Genesis. How does Genesis begin? Here's the major uh, stories that happen before Genesis chapter 12. Okay, the creation of the whole world uh, and the beginning of life with Adam and Eve and the fall, okay? Is that Israel things or all everybody things? It's everybody thing, right? We all have Adam and Eve in common. In the same way, there is a worldwide flood, There is the origin of languages in the Tower of Babel. All the happenings in the first part of Genesis are international, universal in nature, all humanity being involved. And you go, yeah, but then he focuses in on one family, and that's absolutely right. But remember a couple of things. First, all the way in the beginning, when everything goes sideways, When Adam and Eve, our first parents, choose their own way instead of God's way. Choose that they'd rather be like God than obedient to God. When all of that goes sideways, God gives them both consequences, what we call the curse, as well as a promise. And the promise is, I'm going to do something about this. He says that the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, there will be enmity between But he says that seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. It's very cryptic in the beginning. It's a riddle. You have to read all of the Bible to understand what's going on. But here's the gist of it. He basically says, I'm going to set this right. I'm going to bring about redemption. I'm going to send a savior. Okay. What you need to understand is when God starts with Israel, it's not that he surrendered the rest of the world and God, okay, apparently I can't save the whole world. I'll just try one group of people. God chooses a particular people for a universal purpose. Okay, two more pieces I want to lay down to make this clear. One, Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is when God calls Abraham and sets him apart. And this is what he says, Come to a land that I will show you, and I will bless your descendants. And anyone who blesses your descendants will be blessed, and anyone who curses your descendants will be cursed, and through you and your people All nations will be blessed. Particular for a universal purpose. Okay. Now, effectively what I'm suggesting to you is Genesis 12 is the opening parenthesis 
of a focused time in the Bible that God is doing. He's raising up a people. He's teaching those people who he is. He's preparing them for the Savior. Remember, Jesus was a Jew born among Jews whose ministry was almost entirely to Jews. All of the ones who take that message to the ends of the earth are, guess what, Jewish in the beginning, right? In fact, consider this. In Acts chapter 2, we have the day of Pentecost, this festival where all Jews are gathered, and Luke, the author of Acts chapter 2, tells us that they're gathered from all over the Roman Empire. All of them speak different languages, have adapted and are living out different cultures. They live from all over the world, and the Spirit comes upon these 120 Jewish disciples of Jesus, and they begin to speak in languages they don't know, but everybody else does. Here's what's really interesting. It's at that point that the message begins to go out to all the nations. It's at that point that the closed parenthesis happens. But you know what happens right before Genesis chapter 12? The Tower of Babel. The origin of all nations. And so Genesis uh, comes to this place where we see this splitting and this dividing and this internationalizing and this going out. And suddenly we have Abraham, open parenthesis. God deals with Israel, prepares them, gives us the Holy Scriptures. Romans says that's one of the gifts that God gives Israel, right? He does all of these things. He prepares them, and then he sends them the Messiah and brings the Messiah through them. And then on the day of Acts, that parenthesis is closed, and they go out and will be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Okay? This is the context, the broader biblical context for what's happening here. This is why Jesus says it right now right here first. Not only, he's not drawing a barrier, he's talking about the plan. In fact, we know that Jesus is focused on this plan because listen to his words here that get him in trouble among his own people in Luke chapter 4. So here's the thing, Luke uh, tells us uh, about a sermon that Jesus gave in his home synagogue, Jewish place of worship, in the city of Nazareth, where he grew up. And as he's there, he's talking to them, and this is what he says in his sermon. He says, verse 25, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came all over the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them. How many people needed help during this famine that was happening in the land of Israel? Lots. But he continues, he says, but Elijah was sent to none of them, but only in Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, a woman who was a widow. He says, Elijah, during that whole time, heals one woman, takes care of the needs of one woman, raises the dead of one woman, and she's a Sidonian, not a Jew. He continues, he says in verse 27, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was clothed, uh, cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Again, an outsider, a foreigner. Okay. Now, why does he say these things? He goes on to say a prophet has no honor in his own co country. He's going to, he recognizes the tragedy that Jesus' own people, the ones who were prepared for him, the ones who had all of the things that point to him, all the shadows of the things to come, all of the prophecies of his ministry, were also going to nationally reject him. 
But even here, we see his concern, his recognition of a broader and a deeper plan. So that, again, is the context. But what is going on here? Why does Jesus talk this way? A few more pieces, these ones not contextual but semantic in nature. Okay? Here's a challenge in reading the Bible today. It wasn't written in English, nor was it written recently. Right? The Bible is composed of documents that are in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and now all at least 2,000 up to 4,000 years old. Different place, different time, different culture, different language. That doesn't mean we can't understand what's said, but it does mean we can't always see things that are going on. This passage was written in Greek. And in this little uh, back and forth that Jesus has with this, wo- with this woman in English, you can miss some things that happen. And here's the first one, okay? When Jesus says in verse 27, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This is not the average, usual word that we find for dogs in the New Testament. It's a word that's only used here. Okay. You may remember in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, Jesus says, don't cast your pearls before swine or give that which is holy to dogs. That's the normal word. That's the general word. And side note, okay, you may have seen a happy golden retriever puppy running around here. That word doesn't apply to happy golden retriever puppies, okay? This is, this is the ancient world. We're talking about street dogs here, okay? Dogs that are a threat and a danger and are outside and belong to no one and just uh, you know, run the streets at night. When the Jews refer to Gentile dogs, that's what they have in mind. That's the picture. Something dirty, disgusting, subhuman, etc. That's not the word that Jesus uses here. He uses the word with a diminutive, excuse me, a diminutive, there we go, which basically means he changes the end to say it affectionately, okay? There's a difference between a dog and a doggy, okay? That's probably too strong for what Jesus does here, but by using this diminutive, he makes it an affectionate term. He's not talking about the dogs on the outside, but obviously the dogs seated under the table. These are not, you know, dingoes who may ravage your household, these are household pets, okay? That doesn't remove the fact that he makes a distinction, does it? Children and dogs. He recognizes a line, but he does it in a way that is almost playful, almost invitational, okay? Again, he doesn't say, I would never heal someone like your daughter. He doesn't say, you are on the outside, what do I have to do with you? He says, there's an order, there's a plan. First, my ministry is to the house of Israel, and then, okay. But in doing so, he, he plays with this idea. Listen, you guys know how racism works. Do you think this woman has ever experienced or knows someone who has experienced by a Jew being called a dog? I would say it's very likely. Tyre is just beyond the boundaries of Israel, and there is no getting to the rest of the world south except crossing through Israel. Everything to the east of Israel, where Jordan is today, is basically wilderness, okay? She knows what it's like to be mistreated, to be labeled a Gentile dog. But she hears something different here. In fact, we can see that in the text, because what does she do? Does she get defensive? Does she give up? 
Even the fact that she responds, notice the way she responds in verse 28. She answered him, yes, Lord. She doesn't disagree. In fact, she uses this title, this respectful title. She honors him in his position, yes, Lord. And she says, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Effectively, she says, I'm not asking you to serve the meal now. I'm not asking you to feed the dogs. But even dogs in a household eat what falls between the cracks of a table. It's just one thing, just one little thing. Listen, there's a couple of things we should nail down here. Okay, first, this woman doesn't seem offended by Jesus. Second, the apostles who communicated these stories, Peter who taught it to the church in Rome, Mark who recorded it, he doesn't seem offended by this either. In fact, Mark's audience has a vested interest in what Jesus thinks of Gentiles, of what Jesus' plan is for the nations, because that's that. And so all of these things need to be kept in mind, and there's one last one here that we can't see. Okay? When Jesus speaks of children in the household, he uses the word that's so broad it refers to offspring or descendants uh, or, or adult children. It means, it means there's a biological connection. But the word that she uses is not Jesus' word. She uses the word that speaks of little children. She uses the word that would speak of her own little child. She speak, uh, uses the word that Jesus speaks of when he says, uh, we must become like little children to enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a domesticizing, there's an intimacy in this exchange that we miss out on, as well as a play on concepts and words. But nonetheless, it's striking that this woman, she comes and Jesus basically says, you have no right, you have no purchase, you have no standing to come before me, you offer me nothing, right? You don't have the credentials. And she doesn't disagree. You see, Matthew tells us that Jesus says this woman has great faith. And it's not merely just because she's persistent, although she is. right? She has an agenda. Her daughter needs help. She's going to get that help, and so she's not put off by this apparent distance that Jesus makes, but keeps pressing. But what's really striking about her faith here is the humility she knows the whole weight of Jesus' healing depends not on her, not on her credentials or her deservation, but entirely on Jesus. So she's fine with the label, even if it's dog. See, here's the thing. Right now, we live in a time where culturally there's a sinner word that bears this rejection, one that we find inherently offensive and one that Jesus likes to use. It's the word sinner. We don't like that word. And the reason we don't like that word is just like the word dog in the first century, we've heard people spit it out of their mouths with hatred and distancing and as an act of pride and even dehumanizing. But when Jesus says things, he means them differently. Jesus says, I did not come for the righteous, but for sinners, in the same way that a doctor comes for the sick. 
Have you ever seen a real doctor, a doctor who manifests his character, use the word sick as if it disgusted him? Well, you're totally diseased, right? (laughs) What's the job a doctor signs up for? To heal. When Jesus uses the word sinner, he means it compassionately, but he speaks it honestly. And here's the thing. You cannot come to Jesus unless you take that label. Unless you're willing to identify as a sinner. Jesus is offering a salvation. Jesus is offering an answer to a problem. Jesus is offering a cure. You have to settle for the diagnosis. You have to take it on yourself. Martin Luther is one of my heroes. He was a reformer, a Catholic monk, who challenged the Catholic Church's misunderstandings as as the Church had drifted away from the truths of how salvation happens and other things. He never meant to start the Protestant aspect of Christianity. He just wanted to see his own church that he loved and that he served the Catholic Church change. But that's not how things went. But one of the things that Luther understood was his own need for Jesus. And I'll tell you, he was rough around the edges. He says some things sometimes which are uh, surprisingly uncouth. He was just a rough guy. But I want to share with you some things he wrote to another reformer, Philip Mancanthalon. This has become one of my favorite quotes. I meditate on it often. And this is because Luther understood who Jesus was. This is what he says. He says, Philip, if you're a preacher of grace, then preach a true grace and not a fictitious grace. If grace is true, you must bear a true and not a fictitious sin. What is he saying? He says you can't come as a hypothetical sinner. You can't come just embracing the universal category. It has to be particularized. It has to be personalized. But notice what he says. He says God does not save people who are only fictitious sinners. Be a sinner and sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly. For he's victorious over sin, death, and the world. His idea here is not find ways to make yourself a worse person. When he says sin boldly here, he's not saying look for ways to disobey God. That would be a misunderstanding. What he's saying is stand in that position of sinner confidently knowing there's something to help. Come fully recognizing and not trying to downplay who you are. See, that's the danger for most of us. Because the whole world is built on a place where we need to deserve help. We even use language like the deserving poor as opposed to the undeserving poor, right? We limit our help to those who show some sign, some qualification, even if it's not enough to take care of their own needs. There is no such thing as a deserving sinner. There is no way to say, I'm at least good enough that you should save me. At least good enough that you should receive me. I still need help, but I just need you, Lord, to grade on a curve. No fictitious sinner will experience the salvation Jesus offers. Sinner is a horrible term. It's a terrible term, but it's a true one. And it's the ones that Jesus came to save. This woman isn't phased by this language. She knows she has no stake in Israel. 
Earlier in her life, before Jesus came, she could have heard about the God of Israel and become a convert. She had not. She stayed on the outside. She knew she was on the outside. But this is the thing I love. This conversation right here is in an interesting period of time because Jesus has not yet done what he's going to do. He's not yet died on the cross. He's not yet accomplished what Ephesians 2 says, where that cross broke down the wall between Jew and Gentile and universalized God's salvation. Hasn't happened yet. But we don't live in that interim period. There is no Syrophoenician woman today where Jesus would say, uh, my people first and then. We live in the and then. Who qualifies for God's help today? Us. The nations, the Gentiles, those who were once, as Paul says in Ephesians, far from God, alienated from his people, with no connection to the covenant, those are the ones that Jesus desires to help. And so this woman here is an, a prototype of what God's going to do. A model. That's why Mark has her here for us to look at. But you have to be humble enough to come and agree with Jesus' identification. Take on his label. And yet at the same time, you have to not just be humble, but confident. Right? That's the other thing we see about this woman. She, she says, yes, Lord, dog I beat. But even the dogs eat from the little table. Listen, that's not saying something about, you know, how dogs work, how households work, okay? Not to mention, you know, kids who can't seem to stop from feeding the pets around the table. That's not what the conversation is about. What she's saying is, what she's saying is there's previews, there's trailers of what is to come, there's the possibility of healing now. And I want you to remember again that ultimately, trace the roots of that idea. Why does she believe that? Well, she thinks it makes logical sense. But why does she think it makes, makes logical sense? Push it further and further. You're not going to get away from the character of Jesus. Sooner or later, it comes down to the fact that, yes, she realizes Jesus is her only hope, and she throws herself at the feet of Jesus. That's faith. It's humble confidence, not self-confidence, but not despair either. Why? Because uniquely, Christianity among other religions, among other ways of thinking, among other philosophies, is the only one that believes someone else has done absolutely everything necessary. And so all you need to do is bring your needs to him. Christianity is not a way to save yourself. It's a God-given, God-offered means of salvation, freely given at great cost to the giver. And so that produces in us a different thing. What I'm telling you is whoever you are this morning, whatever's gone on in your life, however you view yourself, you qualify for salvation because you're disqualified for life. <laughs> That's the way it works. That's the good news deeply seated in the bad news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And listen, for us as Christians, it doesn't change. It doesn't go, okay, God gave me that one get-out-of-jail-free card, and now I've got to earn my way. Now I've got to pay him back. 
Now I'm facing a new problem. And what do we do? We think, okay, God, I, let's see, what, what do I have to bargain with? If it's not the blood of Christ, it doesn't matter. Paul tells us we should boldly enter into the throne room of grace. Have you ever thought about that? Picture the God of the Old Testament with light and flame and holiness and danger. Picture just shoving open the doors and walking right in. Boldly enter the throne room. Why? Because it's a throne room of grace. Why? Because we are now his children. This is what Paul says in Romans for you who are Christians this morning. If God gave his only son for you, how will he not give you all good things? Now again, you have to accept God's label of good and not your own. He's smarter than you. There's a lot of things you think you need that would hurt and harm you. God's no's are just as gracious as his yeses. But we enter in with our needs and our wants and our fears and our desires. We enter in boldly as children, not merely subjects, as sons, not merely servants. We enter in and we come because we know that we stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ, like Andy mentioned in our catechism this morning, imputed from the outside, foreign to us, but fully a part of us. And I want you to notice lastly and finally, he said to her, for this statement you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. Notice there's no, there's no show. He doesn't even go with her. He just says, it's done, it's finished, it's over, go your way. And again, I think we get a striking insight into this woman's faith. Does she have evidence that her daughter is healed? She's begging, she's pushing, she's, you know, uh, arguing with Jesus for this, and as soon as he says it's done, she just leaves. She walks all the way home. She knew Jesus could do it, and all she needed was his word. She has it, and that's enough, and she goes. And, verse 30, she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let's pray. Father, we saw last week as Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but what comes out of the heart. And here we see not only is there no unclean foods for us, because you declared all foods clean, but there are no unclean people. That wall, that division has been broken down and it's still ministry to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Still, it began here in Israel and spills out into the world, but nonetheless, we all come not as Jews or as Gentiles, but as sinners who need a Savior. And I thank you, Lord, that you're so willing to poke our misunderstandings to test the depths of our motivation, to not merely give us what we want if it will distance us from the giver. You do this in a way who re, uh, in which you reveal yourself to the Syrophoenician woman. God, I pray for us the prayer of Moses in the book of Exodus. Show us your works that we might know you. We don't just need your works, Lord, we need you. And I pray, Lord, that you would cultivate in our hearts a faith like this woman, 
a faith that is humble, a faith that will take on our total undeserving nature and not come on our own credentials, but on the credentials of Christ. Come upon your character and not our own. Not seek to bargain, but to beg. And I pray as well, Lord, that we would come with a confidence like this woman, knowing not only was Jesus' death necessary for us because we are sinners and fall short, but Jesus' death was willingly an act of love. And so we can come in confidence, boldly entering into the throne room of grace. Forgive us, Lord, for trying to find salvation or reputation or answers in any other name, even our own. I also pray, Lord, that you would rip out any sense of racism or division, any distancing, any them. Lord, there's only an us, and that's so much more despairing than those who divide lines between us and them because all we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one is in need of a Savior. None of us is righteous, not a single one. But because of that universalizing need, Lord, it makes the gospel that you've given, the good news that you have for us, universal as well. I pray that we would see people as people you love, people you died for, people you came to save. And that you would truly break down any barrier, any division between class, culture, race, or language that we find in our heart because the cross tore it all down. We ask that you'd help us with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we respond, we're going to continue.